So today we have on T.S. Wiley. We do. Yes. And she first came into my uh, view right when I first started dating you because you were having these lunchtime experiences with her. And she just... That she'd, sounds dangerous. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> she had just written the book, um, Sex, Lies, and Menopause. Right. And you guys were chatting about the Wiley Protocol. Yeah, and, and uh, in this episode, we talk a lot about the um, the rhythmic um, release of um, bioidentical hormones. She's really a household name in Santa Barbara because she was here. It's really interesting to see if she is now mm-hmm. uh, and the long-term effects of her theories and her practice and how she changed things. And some of the questions are still out in the open. What about compounding pharmacies? What about HRT generally? Um, I think you'll enjoy this. Yeah, I found her section on sleep and um, melatonin and the um, adrenals fascinating. Absolutely. Enjoy the show. But what do I know? I'm just a vagina doctor. T.S. Wiley, welcome to the Vagina Doctor podcast. It's great to have (laughs) you. I love the title. Thank you very much. I like the title. Good. I'm glad you like the title. I do. It's hilarious. Right. Well, you know, you're you're still making a lot of fuss about about the subject of hormones and life. And I mean, best known for your books, um, Lights Out, Sex, Life, and Menopause. You've had some good titles. And now I understand you're on a third book. I'm working on one for the daughters Mm -hmm. of the women who figured this out 22 years ago and wanted to try it. Because they're in their 40s now. Some of them are uncomfortable. Some of them aren't. And uh, I think it's just going to be sexualized in menopause 20 years on, but I don't know. I don't know. We might come up with a catchier title. <laughs> We've, uh, we have a long history. Uh, we talked uh, probably 25 years ago, 23, sure. 25 years ago. We moved to friends and, and the medical business, and, and particularly I interested in hormone replacement therapy. So... If you don't mind, I'd like you to go into uh, a, and and I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but a summary of your, (laughs) uh, of sex, lies, and menopause, because that was really the world-shaking, earth-shaking philosophy. When you said summary, I was going to say, you know how old I am. That would take a long time. (laughs) Um, Sex, lies, and menopause was a book. It opens at Woodstock. Because I wanted to reach people who are our age now and get them interested. And a lot of the subtitles in the book are just song titles. Yeah. So that was what was familiar. And I explained to them what happened to them. That's what I usually do in a book. In other words, they were raised with a certain attitude about sex, about contraception, about babies. And a lot of them didn't have babies. You know, a lot of them went to work. When, I mean, after World War II, when college was given out with the GI Bill, women couldn't wait for those men to go to college, so they went with them. And they went to college. So the whole world changed 
in the 50s, frankly. And um, some women made money. Some women got excited. Some women figured out they didn't want children. And uh, you can't breastfeed babies you didn't have. And it was my contention that breast cancer was from not breastfeeding, not having babies. Absolutely. And um, I wanted to prove that in the book. I published peer review articles trying to prove that. In fact, I've published about eight on, if you go to ResearchGate and put in my name, things come up. Um, so Sex, Lies, and Menopause was about the epidemic of breast cancer, the confusion among doctors and women, how's this happening? The world changed. Most of everything is anthropology, yeah. right? So you gotta look at the people and where they're moving and what they're doing. So Sex, Lies, and Menopause, I hope, made that point. And we talked about cancer treatment in one chapter. I think it was a Rolling Stones song, Sympathy for the Devil, about how doctors treat <laughs> breast cancer and how it's never gonna work like that. And what can you do? And in the end, of course, what you can do is be in one of the three states that women have to be in. Pregnant, nursing, or waiting to get pregnant. So since I had tried a lot of things on myself, I could not recreate pregnancy. I have five kids. I tried that, that was weird. And there's nobody to nurse after they say, mom, the bus is here, or can we have pizza? You know, that kind of thing. So I thought I can put myself back in a state of limbo where I have a period every month and all of those genes start switching on and off at tipping points in my body are controlled by hormones, whether it's sun up and sun down, cortisol and melatonin, or sex hormones. And I thought if I could get that close to right or get it so people were comfortable and it didn't damage them, well, that'd be something. So I did. That's what I did in that book. I came up with the, what's called the Wiley Protocol, which is you can't take the same hormones every day. Um, you have to have a period if you can. If you can't, you can follow a lunar cycle. But you got to spin with the earth. Got to be part of the planet. And that came from Lights Out, the book I wrote before. But that was in terms of food and sleep. So... I think that's what I did in Sex, Lies, and Menopause. The, uh, the first time that you and I talked about hormones was actually because I had been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And um, I was looking at various ways of dealing with this. My dad had died of it. My maternal grandfather had died of prostate cancer. So for me, it was not a matter of if I was going to get it, it was when. So I was cognizant, I was aware, I was doing um, the PSA uh, tests and, and so on, and uh, found it very early. Uh, and being in a surgical specialty, we tend to think that's the only way to Yeah, let's treat throw something. it away. Yeah. Let's throw away the evidence. Yes. <laughs> then we won't know if we didn't do it right. <laughs> it really matters. Just let's get rid of it. Yeah. Forget about it. Um, but you brought up the, the issue of, okay, Testosterone supposedly is bad news for prostate cancer. Yeah, and estrogen will give you breast cancer. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
wrong and uh, yeah on both counts yeah on both counts yeah um but it it made perfect sense to me that um the people that were getting prostate cancer were people that had been exposed to testosterone for decades and decades and decades and you know, my one fact that i seem to remember from medical school was 80 percent of men over 80 will have prostate yeah. cancer yeah they may not die from it but right. on autopsy that's where they are um, so the whole thought of the, well, why when men are at their peak of testosterone, we don't see any testosterone, we don't see prostate cancer. cancer. So that's how you and I talked. Now I decided to use both what you were saying <laughs> and what I was saying to treat it. Yeah. To good effect. Testosterone. Good. good. Yeah. And surgery. And so, and it was actually at a time when I, um, I knew somebody in the world was doing this laparoscopically. Yeah. As I researched it, it only seemed like uh, that that wasn't happening in the U.S. The 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 highest number of cases that I remember when it started here, the laparoscopy. Well, it was Laub went overseas yeah. to learn how. Yeah, um, and he was actually my urologist. Yeah, and um, uh, that was when the robot came in and facilitated that operation. But there was a guy in Paris doing yeah. this, yeah. and, and I went to Paris. To have the surgery, um, you know, a lot of things that didn't make a lot of sense to me, you know, but I felt that was the right thing for me to do, and and it's all worked out. So well, you're been, sitting here. I'm sitting here. Yeah, and everything works. I so. I thought my first thought about sex lies and menopause. I probably had a hot flash when my youngest daughter, who's now 31 and just had a baby named Clementine here in town. Actually, in Santa Fe, where we are, um, she um, she was three, so I was probably forty two, forty three, and I ha I didn't know what happened. I was, you know, melting down from the inside out. I didn't like it. I didn't feel good. I thought it was weird. I realized it was a hot flash, and I thought, well, I don't want to do that again. So, I started to look at taking estrogen. Of course, everything said, it'll kill you. You can't yeah. have estrogen. And I'm kind of a moto player, master of the obvious. That's what I do, that's how I think. And I thought, if estrogen kills women, all young women would be dead. Right. All pregnant women would be deader, okay? Mm -hmm. So I thought, it's not the estrogen. Maybe it's when you take the estrogen, maybe it's how you take the estrogen, maybe it's how much you take. So I started to work on the idea that I would get some estrogen. And it was obvious to me that I would mimic a young woman's state of being. And I looked at the rhythms, I looked at the amounts in the bloodstream, I talked to compounding pharmacists. I mean, it was a long haul to get something that's pretty reliable, mm -hmm. you know. And I can make women have periods, which means I can get insurance to pay for it. That's gender-affirming care, and they're transitioning back okay. to being young. I'm going to do that because we need the insurance companies to play ball. So well, at that wait, at that time, compounding pharmacies, how involved were they in treatments like uh, compounding? Medication for hormone replacement therapy. Well, they, then. I'm not going to say they started there because the money's in pain creams, but right. but um, they were doing it 
here and there. I talked to a guy named Bill Altmiller in Sacramento. Somebody recommended it to me. Because people would come and Julie would tell them where I was, Taguchi. Mm-hmm. And then they'd call me and this woman's husband had cancer. And she had called me and I said, well, where are you getting hormones now? Because she was thinking, you know, if he's going to die, he should die comfortable. Mm-hmm. And being without hormones is not comfortable for most people. Right. I mean, you get used to it, but that doesn't mean it's comfortable. So this woman called me and I called him. So the first hormones I got were like Sacramento. And then I, like always, decided to learn about compounding. I ended up owning my own compounding pharmacy in Santa Fe and work with compounders. And I invented, well, I devised the base cream for the Wiley Protocol because the base creams are a nightmare. They're full of crap. And I've got five ingredients that work. You don't have to have 25. And they, the hormones, when they're making them, compounding, they have to dissolve the powder hormones come in a powdered form from desiccated yams and they do it with something called propylene glycol propylene glycol is antifreeze now if you want to take these hormones for 30 years you don't want to rub antifreeze in every time so we use glycerin and that means the pharmacists have to let it sit overnight but it works Mm -hmm. so i got very involved in how they were made how they were shipped, Mm -hmm. methods, materials, pricing, packaging. And then I got a bunch of pharmacies together because I couldn't test anything unless there was standardization. So we did standardization and I would have the pharmacies grab random uh, applicators of hormones and send them to a third party for testing in St. Louis. And if they weren't good, one of my sons dealt with the third party, and then he'd call the pharmacy and say, you don't want my mom to call. I'm telling you, it's not good. Mm-hmm. So he, he'd report back to the pharmacies and try to get them to play ball. And that way, if somebody came in and said, my leg fell off and I think it's your hormones, I would say, tell me what color packages they're in because they're color-coded. No. Tell me who your doctor is, what your dose is. I could work it back to the pharmacy to find out if they got what I intended mm-hmm. and why their leg fell off. Right. But science. no one's leg fell off. No one's leg fell okay, off. Okay, good. Just clarifying. Well, we call that <laughs> science, you know? Um, so what it, you I mean, just for people listening, and, and we do have patients using the Wiley protocol, by the way. Um, let's go into that that dosage. Somebody that goes on Wiley? Well, I made a very basic dose, which was the minimum amount, and it comes in three ML syringes with 30 lines, tiny lines. And those tiny lines are in estrogen, one milligram per tiny line, and progesterone, 20 milligrams, and testosterone, 10 milligrams. It just depends on the concentration. And I put them in those because it won't sediment. When you put it in something called a toppy click like a big jar, mm-hmm. not only is the dose not accurate, but it sediments down to oh, the bottom. Yeah. They started in the beginning putting in it in oil. Not mine, but other people. Mm-hmm. And by the time they got to day 14, they were taking so much hormone they were sick. 
because it was all in the bottom and they were squeezing it up. And uh, so it has to be, the viscosity of the cream has to hold it. And you have to use it in a month and it gets more. Mm-hmm. And I decided we would dose it because everybody can count tiny lines. And for day one to five, four milligrams or four lines of estrogen, morning and night, is a basic dose. Then it goes all the way up to 12 lines, I'm sorry, eight lines, morning and night on day 12. It drops, because this is what it looks like in a textbook. Yeah. Across, up, drop. It's those tipping points and those bottoming out that turn the genes on and off all over your body for apoptosis, for growth, for anything. So I learned a lot about genetics eventually, but um, the but it, basic Wiley uh-huh. protocol goes up and down like that. And you add in progesterone on day 12 and it goes up to day 21 and down to day 28. And if you need more, nobody ever needs less because that was the least amount that would build a good uterine lining and let it fall. And you want the endometrium, right, Mm -hmm. on the muscle wall, to be vascularized during the progesterone phase. So you have to have enough estrogen on day 12 to make progesterone receptors. I learned molecular biology in terms of receptor response, Mm -hmm. because it really isn't how much you take, It's, it's how much you receive. So if we do that, I thought it would work. I mean, all of those things, and doctors wanted some control, surprise. So I made the back of the package so they could raise the whole curve a line or two lines. And then eventually I made something I thought was funny called Triple X. And it's three times a day because you can't put more than a certain amount in at a dose, or you're going to shut down the receptors like insulin resistance. So I put a dose in the middle of the day. And, and people where, felt where do better. they apply? Where do you recommend? Well, apply? in the first place, I believed it was arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, triceps, bat wings, whatever, mm-hmm. arms, estrogen on one arm, progesterone on the other. Then I don't remember which drug company came out with something called Estrazorb, which was a lotion. And as resort, they put it on arms. I win. And then they did a hugely expensive, creepy punch study where they took out punch graphs in women and saw how it went in. So I was convinced that I was right about arms. And with the other hormones for men, there's a DHEA, and I told them to put it over their kidneys in the back. Mm-hmm. You know, adrenals are little hats on your kidney. And Testosterone, the femoral artery near testicles, you know, between the crack. Um, thyroid, women put it right on their thyroid and all the nodules go away. <laughs> you don't have to take their thyroid out. It's stuff like that, you know. Logic, remember? Mm-hmm. Master the obvious. Yeah. <laughs> not being a doctor, I was not previously confused and brain damaged by medical school. So I could just ask questions and go find it. And I got lucky, the internet came speeding along. Yeah. And it got easier than sitting up at the top of Sansom in the doctor's library trying to look it up. 
what um there was mention in one of the podcasts that we were um listening to recently with um bulletproof oh yeah 508 um, people call it just 508 <laughs> um, and that is what is this about your parietal lobe being oh, a bit different i had well that's what doctor part, part of the brain that that's what doctor carraza diagnosed it as oh okay i um he's not he quit a few months ago i had herpes in my eye and it crosses the blood-brain barrier at that point and i was on a vacation we were going to new york i think i was in southampton out on the island by east hampton and i went to the doctor and they might have been a cat scan it wasn't a pet scan they said we see all kinds of spots in your brain we think you have ms I said, I don't think I have MS, but I'd had a blasting, blasting headache. And I would walk up Murray Hill toward Columbia to get the headache to stop. And then I went into town and I went to New York Hospital on the Upper East Side. And the guy said, well, first he said, were you a twin? And I said, yeah. Why'd you ask that? And he said, you can see it in the brain where, you know. And I said, that's kind of creepy and he said but you don't have ms you have herpes in your brain and i said wow what do we got for that and he said nothing he said either herpes wins or you win and i said really it's that dire and he said yeah it's pretty bad I said, okay thanks so because i was visiting my editor i was doing i don't know what i was doing um, because I wrote things before I wrote books. But I, it took a while. On the way home, with this blasting headache, I stopped at the University of Chicago where a couple of my kids were. And I went into the medical bookstore. And I bought hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of medical books. And my husband said, what are we doing? I said, they're going to mail them, and you're going to pay for them. It's going to be okay. And <laughs> they showed up, and apparently he describes it as, I put them in a stack here, and I would read, and I write in the margins, and yellow highlight things, and dog ear pages, put it over here. And he said he watched me go through a pile of at least 12 or 13 in a week, read them, put them over here. I was not only trying to figure out what happened to my brain, but I was looking up hormone stuff. I mean, I was, I had some access that wasn't go to a library at that point. And finally, I went to see Carraza because my son-in-law is an epileptic. And I knew Carraza from meeting him. When Ian joined our family, I took Ian to Dr. Carraza. And I said, can we give him hormones? And Carraza said, why? Wait, who's Dr. Carraza? He's a neurologist here in Santa Barbara. Okay. He was. He just okay. retired. And he said, why? And I said, well, why not? Have you looked his estrogen or his testosterone is 800? And the kid is 23. This is not right. And he said, oh, I don't care. Tell me what you want. So I wrote it down. And what it turned out, Ian could take much less anti-seizure medication 
when we get his hormones up. And anti-seizure medication's hard. Mm-hmm. It'll kill your liver. It'll kill everything. So Carraza said, as doctors have said, I want to look at your brain. I want to look inside you. I'll make a deal with you. I'll prescribe this if you come in. So I came in and I walked heel toe and he looked at my balance and he looked inside my head. And um, he said, you have an extra brain. And I said, is it in my elbow? Where is this extra brain? And he said, you have a lump of tissue that shouldn't be there. And I said, is it a tumor? I mean, what's, what? Is it a neoplasm? What, you know, what is it? And he said, it's part of the parietal lobe and I don't know why it's there. It looks fine. And the joke was always that I was taking massive amounts of hormones by, while reading all of those medical books. And I just grew at peace in my The parietal lobe is where you synthesize information, where everything relates so to everything. Well, I made one more too. Yeah. I, and I think like that anyway. I grew up on a farm in Illinois and I kind of know how the world works animals, plants, people. So that's my parietal lobe. Herpes. Um, A comment. Um, I know that you're opposed to the synthetic uh, oral contraceptives. Sure. Um, But there is a significant protection that they give to the ovary in terms of incidence of ovarian cancer. Yes, but... What do, you, what do you think about that? Well, I think that ovarian cancer happens in the outside capsule. And I think the bubbles, the ripening eggs, mm-hmm. leave little tears and rips when they come out of the follicle. Yeah. And I think over time, if you don't have hormones, it's always been my belief that Hormones keep you, keep your organs, keep your whole body the way it's supposed to be. Because you're at your prime when you have all these hormones. So your liver stays a liver, no cancer. Your lungs stay lungs. Your prostate stays like it's supposed to be. You, your breasts. Everything is sculpted by the effect of op- apoptosis. Progesterone for men, it's DHT. That's your apoptotic factor. And I think the ovary, when you start to run out of hormones and it's got some damage, is possible if it's genetic. It runs in families, ovarian mm-hmm. cancer. And if you take a contraceptive, you're not ovulating. The damage is not accruing, okay? That's very important. The damage is not accruing. Yeah. Okay. Because you're on a contraceptive. Now, I don't think synthetic hormones are particularly good for you, but I think the logical answer to the question is, if you're not ovulating, you can't build up scars, damage, whatever. Those contraceptives barely act like hormones. Most of the ones for women act like androgens, frankly. So you can be a guy... And your ovary can stay pristine, and maybe you won't go to ovarian cancer. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. 
It's not like I didn't think about it. <laughs> I thought about that a long time ago because I saw all those articles. Um, okay, back to the books. Um, lights out. Being the best that we can be, essentially. You know, sleeping when we sleep, eat in season. Well, not being miserable. People wake up exhausted. They can't figure out why they can't get out of bed. Well, when you don't have enough melatonin in the dark hours before midnight, and right now, I don't know, it gets dark about, is it eight? No, it's, Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so you have to have melatonin for those four hours, or it comes back in the morning, and it's like you're drugged. It's like you have a hangover. You can't possibly get up. So I wanted people to understand that if you get up and look at the sun for 10 minutes, if you, you know, and men salute the sun, if they're healthy, um, all of those things are connected. And the artificial light, having your house look like Yankee Stadium at a night game, you know, every room the lights are on, totally not necessary. Candlelight, how many lumens? is in a candle versus a light bulb, which is like something like 150 candles. Well, you'd catch on fire. That can't be a natural state to be sitting next to lights like this, right? Mm -hmm. So that was what, and seasonality. In Santa Barbara, particularly, no one understands that when I was writing it, because it's it's nice here. And the seasons change, but barely. Mm -hmm. My daughter who lives in LA says, they have fire season, fire NATO season, mudslide season. They have seasons in LA, right. but you don't really have that. They're different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that, that, I wanted people to understand food and seasons. What you should eat. Wait, I have a question about melatonin. Um, are you prescribing that or do you recommend prescribing that as a compound? Actually, the Wiley Protocol has transdermal melatonin. Okay. It's in a black bag with black syringes, with little stars and moons. I was really bored by that point. And then, <laughs> well, decorating is my life. I would much rather do that. And then I made Spark, seasonal pulsatile adrenal recalibration, Spark. And these are the only things that are pills. They're little yellow capsules that have a WP on them. And they're filled with five milligrams of hydrocortisone acetate, about a cup of coffee, and some chocolate. It's a smoother ride. So I made a schedule how to take those as earth turns Mm -hmm. and have your cortisol peaks come back. Because for most people, their their adrenals are toast. They don't have any. But you can make these peaks instead. So spark and snooze are a dual therapy. So you, if you, like, let's say I wanted to do the spark and snooze. Yeah. We would order that, right? Yeah. And then um, it would, so at what time, like if I like to go, well, I want to start going to bed earlier. So what time would you put the melatonin on? And where would you put it? You put the melatonin, well, I usually put it on my neck, but you put the melatonin on if you're going to go to bed within an hour, okay, because you could be driving a car. I don't know how susceptible you are. You might fall asleep. You know, you can't walk around and really do stuff. You put the melatonin on, and 
it's got to be dark. You can't be looking yeah, at your yeah, phone. Be dark. You can't be watching TV. So if it's dark and you put on the melatonin, you'll be asleep in about 15 minutes. And then the um, the other adrenal... Spark. Spark. Um, the... Dawn, dusk, and two times in between. But it depends on how long the day is. Yeah. How many hours in between. It's on the back. It's always on the back of the package. Okay. I just write it down. Okay. And if you can follow the schedule on the back of the package, that's the deal. It has to be standardized. You don't, when you go get Valium, you could get a five or a 10. To be pharmaceutical, to be testable, to, to be usable, it has to be standardized in the manufacturer and in the dosing. Now, the old deal, we're all different. We're all special women kind of, that we're certainly ethnically different. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's why you can bring it up. You can, you know, you can't really bring it down. You can spread out the dose. It's a, it's a miracle when somebody gets a migraine. Um, usually the receptors are vibrating. And if you spread out the dose, like four milligrams morning and night, that's eight milligrams you just spread them out two 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 for about three days and the receptors catch up they can dance and fluctuating receptors migraines tinnitus incontinence there's a million things that are fluctuating receptors it's fascinating was that too medical no, 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 it's not medical. It's just... Um, See, I think if I swear in there somewhere, it becomes perfectly medical. understanding. <laughs> yeah. Understandable. I mean, sleep is just a, a common uh, complaint uh, we hear every single day from patients. Um, well, if they don't get up. That's one of the things people have to understand. You can't go to sleep if you don't get up. You really have to get up with the sun. Yeah. And stay up. And have a real life and a real day. Eat something, take a walk. Even if you're not going to work for three hours later or never. You still have to roll with the planet. Right. And then you can sleep. So a lot of not sleeping is no hormone. Estrogen. You give women estrogen and they say, oh, I can sleep. Well, what happens is if you give them melatonin in the hours before midnight and they've taken their estrogen, in the middle of the night, the melatonin blocks estrogen and they sleep better, and then it rebounds. The estrogen comes back up. So women who wake up at 3 and 5, at 1 and 3, have a better solid sleep taking melatonin and estrogen. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure exactly where I um, saw this quote from you. But you I, I oh, think, God, no. I think he called... <laughs> I think you you likened um, men to parasites. I have said things like, did you ever come to one of my seminars in the planetarium? No. Oh. I taught doctors in, in a planetarium in Glendale. I may do it again. And it was a two-day thing so they could have CMEs, and I would like them to learn this. Uh, Taguchi talked about our cancer stats. Courtney Ridley talked about the clinical stuff. And I waved my arms and, you know, we had a soundtrack. And I explained to them how, how it works. And I did say in one of those that men want women, women want babies, 
and babies want fathers. But women don't really want men in any way. And the parasitic nature, <laughs> well, hi, the salami is always fun, but the parasitic nature of having to take care of a big baby, you know, they want to, they look at you for, what are we doing? Did anybody see the Barbie movie yet? We haven't seen it, but I want to see uh, it. That's in the Barbie movie. I didn't just say it. Okay. Um, people have gotten hip to the idea that once women had those contraceptives and they could plan their lives and they went to college before that, they have their own plans. So in order to get those babies they want, they don't have to take care of a big baby necessarily. Right. But <laughs> I just thought it was a somewhat, Sorry. somewhat interesting uh, uh, description. Well, I have two sons and three daughters and three grandsons. So there's a lot of men at my house. A quick bit, a bit of advice for menopausal women. Oh, I thought you were going to give me some. No, no, I'm <laughs> asking a quick for bit it. Of advice? I was going. No. Yeah. Okay, what do you want no, I, I know better than to don't, do that. Don't say parasite. I thought that's where you're starting. Don't say parasite. Yeah. Right. Um, physicians um, are caring for menopausal women uh, with the increased demands that they have on their lives, their activity, their choices. Um, uh, is there is, is hormone replacement therapy, systemic hormone replacement therapy uh, for a, a lifetime? Oh, yeah. I mean, I always tell women, they say, well, how can I get off this? Right. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you can quit any time. You'll just get old again. Yeah. It's not that hard. I and agree. Yeah. I mean, that's just how it works. It's like being a diabetic. If your mm -hmm. pancreas is crashed and burned, you're going to take insulin. And you don't just stop one day. I mean, you can get a transplant or you can get... I worked with a scientist here in town. He's slipped this mortal coil. And when I found him, he was kind of interested in hormones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, he and a partner were trying to put fetal ovaries purchased from clinics under the forearms of women thinking they'd kick in and take over like a transplant. Right. And I said, I don't think that's going to work. No. So it didn't work. Right. But I've worked with a lot of doctors and scientists. A woman named Joanne Manson at Harvard I met when I testified before the Senate about compounding. And Joanne wrote a paper about vitamin D. And I read it. I hadn't talked to Joanne in 13 years. And... It was a stupid paper. It didn't make any sense. She didn't even age and gender match. I mean, it was just all over the place. Sloppy work. And I said, I didn't know where she was, but I found a phone number on the internet for her office at Brigham and Women's Hospital because she was part of the Women's Health Initiative. And I left a message at eight o'clock at night, which was 10 o'clock in New York. And she called the next morning immediately because yeah. I said I think your paper sucks yeah. and I want to tell you about it do you remember me and she said of course I remember you what's wrong with it and I told her all the things and I said first of all 
you were disappointed. You had 16,000 people or something. It was a drug company study. Mm-hmm. You know how they made a drug company, vitamin E? <laughs> and of course, it didn't do anything. And it made right. people have heart attacks. But yeah. um, they were trying to do it with vitamin D. And I think it, Joanne was the patsy who was supposed to give it to people. And she said, well, it just didn't work on anything. She's a cardiologist. Yeah. And she was sure yeah. she would see heart benefit. And she didn't. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, when people take vitamin D, it's very twitchy because you're supposed to be out in the sun to begin with to get vitamin D. It is in some foods. And I said, do you understand what the receptor is, Joanne? And she said, well, it's D3. And I said, no, that's the hormone. Do you understand the receptors for vitamin D? And she said, no. And I said, so if you give it to them and they can't receive it, it's not going to do anything, right? She said, yeah. And I said, melatonin makes the receptor for vitamin D. So if you don't sleep, there's no melatonin, so you can't take in the sunshine the next day. Mm-hmm. So well, that's very interesting. I thought that thought so. Yeah. So we started to work on a paper in the pandemic. Hit. Um, brief thought about compounding pharmacies. They're under the gun again. Always. Um, we've worked, actually I was introduced to Harbor Compounding through you and Julie, and uh, they've been stellar. Oh, good. Really been great. Um, they're actually coming on the podcast in a few weeks. And Mike and, Shaw or Mike Wah? <laughs> um, no, it's actually uh, it's my to my and Toma. Yeah, my and Toma. Okay. To the my like Mayan, or it's a woman. It's woman. a woman. Yeah. Okay, both women. I don't know those guys. Okay. Um, it's who we work with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've been working on a platform, the Wiley Protocol, as I envisioned it, and what can be studied, and honestly, knowing what's in it. In other words, do they get the raw materials from the vendors that they've signed a contract to do it? All the cream from one place, all the powder from one place, because you can't truly standardize the medicine if they're just buying what's cheap that day, right? Right. So it's important that when women want the Wiley Protocol, they go to a registered pharmacy, and that's on our website. Right. And those people have agreed, even if it costs them a little more, they're going to do the right thing. So, and now, and that also protected the pharmacies. The last raid on compounding pharmacies, they, it was called bud testing beyond you state. Mm-hmm. And they decided that they would go to these little pharmacies and tell them that they have to have beyond you state for all the hormones they were making. And of course, nobody had that. Mm-hmm. And it would cost $150,000 or whatever. But I wrote a letter and argued and explained that the Wiley Protocol pharmacies all use the same thing. So they only needed one beyond you state per hormone from one pharmacy because it was all the same. Yeah. And they bought it. Good. The government. So it benefits the pharmacies too. T.S. Wiley. Thank yes. you so much. Oh, you're welcome. For being on the Vagina Doctor podcast. Well, um, it went really fun. It went quickly and it was nothing like a pelvic exam. <laughs> <laughs> Great to see you. Thanks. You too, Duncan.
Well, thanks for listening. Uh, we're getting really good feedback. We'd really appreciate a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Thank you. You can always DM the Vagina Doctor Instagram with any questions or topics you'd like to learn more about or email us. The Vagina Doctor Podcast. It all starts here. <laughs>